Chapter 2 of Sentimental Education by Gustave Flaubert. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Damon and Pythias. Charles de Laurier's father, an ex-captain in the line, who had left the service in 1818, had come back to Nogent, where he had married and, with the amount of the dowry, bought up the business of a process server, which brought him barely enough to maintain him. Embittered by a long course of unjust treatment, suffering still from the effects of old wounds, and always regretting the emperor, he vented on those around him the fits of rage that seemed to choke him. Few children received so many whackings as his son. In spite of blows, however, the brat did not yield. His mother, when she tried to interpose, was also ill-treated. Finally, the captain planted the boy in his office, and all the day long kept him bent over his desk, copying documents, with the result that his right shoulder was noticeably higher than his left. In 1833, on the invitation of the president, the captain sold his office. His wife died of cancer. He then went to live at Dijon. After that, he started in business at Troy, where he was connected with the slave trade, and, having obtained a small scholarship for Charles, placed him at the College of Seine, where Frederick came across him. But one of the pair was twelve years old, while the other was fifteen. Besides, a thousand differences of character and origin tended to keep them apart. Frederick had in his chest of drawers all sorts of useful things, choice articles, such as a dressing case. He liked to lie late in bed in the morning, to look at the swallows and to read plays, and regretting the comforts of home, he thought college life rough. To the process server's son, it seemed a pleasant life. He worked so hard that at the end of the second year, he had got into the third form. However, owing to his poverty or to his quarrelsome disposition, he was regarded with intense dislike. But when on one occasion, in the courtyard where pupils of the middle grade took exercise, an attendant openly called him a beggar's child, he sprang at the fellow's throat and would have killed him if three of the ushers had not intervened. Frederick, carried away by admiration, pressed him in his arms. From that day forward they became fast friends. The affection of a grandee no doubt flattered the vanity of the youth of meaner rank, and the other accepted as a piece of good fortune this devotion freely offered to him. During the holidays Charles's father allowed him to remain in the college. A translation of Plato, which he opened by chance, excited his enthusiasm. Then he became smitten with a love of metaphysical studies, and he made rapid progress, for he approached the subject with all the energy of youth and the self-confidence of an emancipated intellect. Jouffroy, Cousin, La Romiguerre, Malbranche, and the Scotch metaphysicians, everything that could be found in the library dealing with this branch of knowledge passed through his hands. He found it necessary to steal the key in order to get the books. Frederick's intellectual distractions were of a less serious description. He made sketches of the genealogy of Christ carved on a post in the Rue de Trois-Rois, then at the gateway of a cathedral. After a course of medieval dramas, he took up memoirs, Froissart, Comines, Pierre de l'Estoile, and Brantome. The impressions made on his mind by this kind of reading took such a hold of it that he felt a need within him of reproducing those pictures of bygone days. His ambition was to be one day the Walter Scott of France. De Laurier 
dreamed of formulating a vast system of philosophy which might have the most far-reaching applications. They chatted over all these matters at recreation hours, in the playground, in front of the moral inscription painted under the clock. They kept whispering to each other about them in the chapel, even with St. Louis staring down at them. They dreamed about them in the dormitory, which looked out on a burial ground. On walking days they took up a position behind the others and talked without stopping. They spoke of what they would do later, when they had left the college. First of all, they would set out on a long voyage with the money which Frederick would take out of his own fortune on reaching his majority. Then they would come back to Paris, they would work together and would never part, and, as a relaxation from their labours, they would have love affairs with princesses in boudoirs lined with satin, or dazzling orgies with famous courtesans. Their rapturous expectations were followed by doubts. After a crisis of verbose gaiety, they would often lapse into profound silence. On summer evenings, when they had been walking for a long time over stony paths which bordered on vineyards, or on the high road in the open country, and when they saw the wheat waving in the sunlight, while the air was filled with the fragrance of Angelica, a sort of suffocating sensation took possession of them, and they stretched themselves on their backs, dizzy, intoxicated. Meanwhile, the other lads in their shirt-sleeves were playing at base or flying kites. Then, as the usher called in the two companions from the playground, they would return, taking the path which led along by the gardens watered by brooklets. Then they would pass through the boulevards, overshadowed by the old city walls. The deserted streets rang under their tread. The grating flew back, they ascended the stairs, and they felt as sad as if they had had a great debauch. The proctor maintained that they mutually cried up each other. Nevertheless, if Frederick worked his way up to the higher forms, it was through the exhortations of his friend, and, during the vacation of 1837, he brought Delaurier to his mother's house. Madame Moreau disliked the young man. He had a terrible appetite. He was fond of making republican speeches. To crown all, she got it into her head that he had been the means of leading her son into improper places. Their relations toward each other were watched. This only made their friendship grow stronger, and they bade one another adieu with heartfelt pangs when, in the following year, de Laurier left the college in order to study law in Paris. Frederick anxiously looked forward to the time when they would meet again. For two years they had not laid eyes on each other, and... When their embraces were over, they walked over the bridges to talk more at ease. The captain, who had now set up a billiard-room at Villeneau, reddened with anger when his son called for an account of the expense of tutelage, and even cut down the cost of victuals to the lowest figure. But, as he intended to become a candidate at a later period for a professor's chair at the school, and as he had no money, Delaurier accepted the post of principal clerk in an attorney's office at Troyes. By dint of sheer privation he spared four thousand francs, and, by not drawing upon the sum which came to him through his mother, he would always have enough to enable him to work freely for three years, while he was waiting for a better position. It was necessary, therefore, to abandon their former project of living together in the capital, at least for the present. Frederick hung down his head. This was the first of his dreams which had crumbled into dust. Be consoled, said the captain's son. Life is long, we are young, 
We'll meet again. Think no more about it. He shook the other's hand warmly, and, to distract his attention, questioned him about his journey. Frederick had nothing to tell, but, at the recollection of Madame Arnoux, his vexation disappeared. He did not refer to her, restrained by a feeling of bashfulness. He made up for it by expatiating on Arnoux, recalling his talk, his agreeable manner, his stories, and de Laurier urged him strongly to cultivate this new acquaintance. Frederick had of late written nothing. His literary opinions were changed. Passion was now above everything else in his estimation. He was equally enthusiastic about Werther, René, Frank, Lara, Lelia, and other ideal creations of less merit. Sometimes it seemed to him that music alone was capable of giving expression to his internal agitation. Then he dreamed of symphonies, or else the surface of things seized hold of him, and he longed to paint. He had, however, composed verses. De Laurier considered them beautiful, but did not ask him to write another poem. As for himself, he had given up metaphysics. Social economy and the French Revolution absorbed all his attention. Just now he was a tall fellow of twenty-two, thin, with a wide mouth and a resolute look. On this particular evening, he wore a poor-looking paletot of lasting, and his shoes were white with dust, for he had come all the way from Villeneuve on foot for the express purpose of seeing Frederick. Isidore arrived while they were talking. Madame begged of Monsieur to return home, and, for fear of his catching cold, she had sent him his cloak. "'Wait a bit,' said de Laurier, and they continued walking from one end to the other of the two bridges which rest on the narrow islet formed by the canal and the river. When they were walking on the side towards Nogent, they had, exactly in front of them, a block of houses which projected a little. At the right might be seen the church, behind the mills in the wood, whose sluices had been closed up, and, at the left, the hedges covered with shrubs, along the skirts of the wood, formed a boundary for the gardens, which could scarcely be distinguished. But on the side towards Paris, the high road formed a sheer descending line, and the meadows lost themselves in the distance under the vapours of the night. Silence reigned along this road, whose white track clearly showed itself through the surrounding gloom. Odours of damp leaves ascended towards them, the waterfall, where the stream had been diverted from its course a hundred paces further away, kept rumbling with that deep, harmonious sound which waves make in the night-time. De Laurier stopped and said, "'Tis funny to have these worthy folks sleeping so quietly. Patience! A new eighty-nine is in preparation. People are tired of constitutions, charters, subtleties, lies. Ah, if I had a newspaper or a platform, how I would shake off all these things. But in order to undertake anything, whatever, money is required. What a curse it is to be a tavern-keeper's son, and to waste one's youth in quest of bread. He hung down his head, bit his lips, and shivered under his threadbare overcoat. Frederick flung half his cloak over his friend's shoulder. They both wrapped themselves up in it, and, with their arms around each other's waists, they walked down the road side by side. "'How do you think I can live over there without you?' said Frederick. The bitter tone of his friend had brought back his own sadness. "'I would have done something with a woman who loved me. What are you laughing at? Love is the feeding ground, 
and, as it were, the atmosphere of genius. Extraordinary emotions produce sublime works. As for seeking after her whom I want, I give that up. Besides, if I should ever find her, she will repel me. I belong to a race of the disinherited, and I shall be extinguished with a treasure that will be of paste or of diamond, I know not which. Somebody's shadow fell across the road, and at the same time they heard these words. Excuse me, gentlemen. The person who uttered them was a little man attired in an ample brown frock coat, and with a cap on his head which under its peak afforded a glimpse of a sharp nose. Monsieur Rock, said Frederick. The very man, returned the voice. This resident in the locality explained his presence by stating that he had come back to inspect the wolf traps in his garden near the waterside. And so you are back again in the old spot? Very good. I ascertained the fact through my little girl. Your health is good, I hope. You are not going away again? Then he left them, repelled probably by Frederick's chilling reception. Madame Moreau, indeed, was not on visiting terms with him. Père Roque lived in peculiar relations with his servant-girl, and was held in very slight esteem, although he was the vice-president at elections and Monsieur d'Ambrose's manager. The banker who resides in the Rue d'Anjou, observed de Laurier, do you know what you ought to do, my fine fellow? Isidore once more interrupted. His orders were positive not to go back without Frederick. Madame would be getting uneasy at his absence. Well, well, he will go back, said de Laurier. He's not going to stay out all night. And as soon as the man-servant had disappeared, you ought to ask that old chap to introduce you to the Dampereuse. There's nothing so useful as to be a visitor at a rich man's house. Since you have a black coat and white gloves, make use of them. You must mix in that set. You can introduce me into it later. Just think, a man worth millions. Do all you can to make him like you, and his wife too. Become her lover. Frederick uttered an exclamation by way of protest. Why, I can quote classical examples for you on that point, I rather think. Remember Rastignac in the Comédie Humaine? You will succeed, I have no doubt. Frederick had so much confidence in de Laurier that he felt his firmness giving away, and forgetting Madame Arnoux, or including her in the prediction made with regard to the other, he could not keep from smiling. The clerk added, A last piece of advice. Pass your examinations. It is always a good thing to have a handle to your name, and, without more ado, give up your Catholic and Satanic poets, whose philosophy is as old as the twelfth century. Your despair is silly. The very greatest men have had more difficult beginnings, as in the case of Mirabeau. Besides, our separation will not be so long. I will make that pickpocket of a father of mine disgorge. It is time for me to be going back. Farewell. Have you got a hundred sous to pay for my dinner? Frederick gave him ten francs, what was left of those he had got that morning from Isidore. Meanwhile, some forty yards away from the bridges, a light shone from the garret window of a low-built house. De Laurier noticed it. Then he said emphatically, as he took off his hat, Your pardon, Venus, Queen of Heaven, but penury is the mother of wisdom. We have been slandered enough for that, so have mercy. This allusion to an adventure in which they had both taken part put them into a jovial mood. They laughed loudly as they passed through the streets. 
Then, having settled his bill at the inn, De Laurier walked back with Frederick as far as the crossway near the Hotel Dieu, and, after a long embrace, the two friends parted. End of chapter 2